here. What you, what you need to do, if you've never played this game or seen it played, is you need to take your shoes off. Because that's part of the game. Uh, and you need to hand one of your shoes to your spouse. And they are going to hand you one of theirs, okay? So that's the fun part of this game. Yes, it's, I know, it's just so fun. We don't usually take our shoes off in church. Well, some of you do, but it's just weird. Now we're doing it publicly. So you should be holding one of your shoes and one of your spouse's shoes at this point, okay? So the way this game goes is if I'm going to ask you questions, and whoever you think is appropriate for the answer, you raise that shoe, okay? If you think it's for you. So if I say, who's better looking, and you think you are, you would raise your shoe. If you think your wife is or your husband is, you would raise their shoe, okay? So that's how it's a pretty simple concept here. We'll see if we can get into it. We'll start with a nice easy one. Who's the better driver? Okay. There's an agreement for the Selfridges, not so much for the Regals. Uh, but they said each other are the better driver, so that was nice of them. Who is more likely to get up at night if it's needed? All right. All right, there's agreement here. That's good. Who does more work inside and outside the home? And outside. More inside and outside, both, put together. <laughs> Should have picked more decisive couples here, maybe. Y'all raised both shoes, so <laughs> every single one of you. It's a safe answer, though, so. All right. Who initiates kisses more? Okay, okay. We know our couple's a little better this morning. Who has a higher pain tolerance? Okay. There's still agreement here. You guys are doing well. Who's more patient? <laughs> so the guys up here are very patient gentlemen. The women are acknowledging not so much. Okay. Who's usually the better dressed? <laughs> right answer, guys. Good job. <laughs> Who is higher maintenance? There's a quick answer for the Regals over there. Selfridges agree too. All right. Who said I love you first? <laughs> they can't remember. The Selfridges know it was there. Now the Regals, they're confused. They don't remember. Oh, okay. You put it down, so I didn't see it anymore. Who snores more? <laughs> the guys are patient snorers. Uh, who's more romantic? Eric saw his shoe, so he put his up too, but he didn't know you, were, he didn't know you put up both shoes, so... Who is kinder? <laughs> John's guardedly raising his own shoe. Uh, <laughs> who's more likely to say, I'm sorry? <laughs> All right. 
Who's more excited to get off this stage? <laughs> you all agree on that? Okay, that's, it. that's all I got for you guys. You guys can go put your shoes back on, please. Uh, and you can be seated. Yes, thank you, couples. Y'all did so well. Thanks for being willing to be embarrassed up here. I do it every Sunday, so. <laughs> It'll be on the video, so just have to go back and watch it. Thank you all. So, as we continue in our Truish series, we have to ask ourselves, why did we just play that ridiculous game? Well, our Truish series is all about what? Truth. Truth versus lies, okay? The reality is, as I was hoping, they disagreed on some of those answers. There was not agreement, and I do offer marriage counseling. Uh, just, you know, as a side note of absolutely no importance to that, what just happened, because uh, you all agreed on everything so well. But the reality is, when they disagreed, some of those questions, somebody was wrong. Because some of those, you could add up the time, you could add up the uh, number of things, and you could actually get down to the truth of the answer. However, some of those questions are subjective. It's a matter of opinion, matter of perspective. Who's more patient? Well, you're not going to be able to quantify that and do an actual answer. Uh, who snores more? You can quantify that. Uh, if you had some cameras and some sound recording devices, um, that's something you could quantify. Uh, who said, I love you first? That's something that, that's, there's a definitive answer there for that. But for some of them, they're, they're subjective. See, some of, while some of the questions dealt with subjective truth, some of them dealt with objective truth. Uh, what we're talking about in this series, what we're going to be focusing on through our true-ish series, is not subjective truth. However, the world will try to convince us it is. The world will try to convince us and uh, Christians that what's in the Bible is subjective truth. It matters on your perspective. It matters from your point of view how you're seeing what you're seeing. But we're not going to be dealing with subjective truth. What God says in His Word is objective. It is absolute truth. And the reason why, why is what God says in His Word objective? Why is it absolute truth? Well, for the same reason why the things up here were subjective truth. Because when it's subjective, it's based on their perspective. When God says something, it's based on His perspective. But His is the only one that matters. Because he is absolute, because he has no beginning, because he has no end, his perspective is the eternal perspective. It's solid. It's never changing. Now, in, if we were to play this game in 15 years from now, I can almost guarantee you some of those answers would change. Because we change. Because we adapt. What would be interesting is if I could have found a couple who did that like as a pre-marriage thing, and then you do the same game with them once they're married for a few years, and the answers are going to change as they realize, I'm not nearly as patient as I thought I was. I'm not, I'm not nearly as likely to get up in the middle of the night if I don't have to, whether it's a dog or a kid or something like that. I'm, I'm more likely to act like I'm still sleeping 
I've learned how to breathe and make it sound like I'm still sleeping. I've mastered it. Some of you have done that. I know it. But subjective truth is subjective because we change, because we don't maintain the same, yet God's not like that. So when God says something from his perspective, it's never changing. It doesn't matter how much time you give it. It doesn't matter how many millennia uh, pass. It's never going to change. That's what makes it absolute. That's why his truth is absolute truth. So I know it was a silly game, but it's to help us understand subjective truth versus objective truth. When we believe something based on our perspective, it can be subjective truth. However, the more we read the Word of God, the more we understand objective truth, we begin to solidify our lives, our beliefs, our faith on things that don't change. Once we disagree on the Bible being the word of God, once we decide we are the arbiters of truth, once we decide that if we just base our faith, our understanding, our uh, theology on us, we get into some muddy waters because we're going to change. We're going to adapt as life goes on, and all of a sudden, so does our faith, so does our theology, so does a lot of other things. And so when we base them on Christ we know it's an eternal perspective. And what we're going to talk about is eternal truth. These aren't just Christian points of view that we're going to be talking about. We're talking about God's point of view. Sometimes we've gotten this wrong, church. Sometimes, uh, and I hope it doesn't happen, but uh, I might even present something that's not the truth of God. And I hope that anything I say, you always weigh it against the Word of God, and, and you, you don't just listen to what I say without question, but you take anything I say, and you take it to the Word of God, and you say, is it true? Because we can alter the Word of God based on our own perspective as well. We can abuse it, we can manipulate it to mean what we want it to mean if we just take little pieces, if we don't look at it as the whole, but we just try to use things for our good. As we talked about last week, this is why it's so important to clear up what the Word of God actually says. As we saw in 2020, uh, when there's any kind of arguments, people say, well, uh, so-and-so said this, or this is truth, or that, that's truth, and I don't know about the rest of you, but all of 2020, all I want to say is, what is true? What is true here? And it happens with the Word of God. People say, well, this is what the Word of God says. That's what the Word of God says. For too long, the church has perpetuated, what, let's be honest, lies. We've pushed lies. Maybe not knowingly, maybe there was good-intentioned lies, but we have perpetuated lies. We told people, and I can say this because I've heard a lot of these, the Bible says uh, drinking alcohol is a sin. The Bible says smoking is a sin. The Bible says going to movies is a sin. The Bible says dancing is a sin. The Bible says not dressing up for church is a sin. The Bible says eating in a sanctuary is a sin. The Bible says wearing a hat in church is a sin. The Bible says getting a tattoo is a sin. These statements are all true-ish and yet a lie all the same. Not a single one of those statements you will find in the Word of God. The Bible doesn't say any of that. Now, I can use the Word of God to make a pretty good case for a lot of those. To say, yeah, well, you know what, I think that's a sin because this is what you find in the Word of God. But we made a couple leaps, and then we lied and said, the Word of God says this, 
And then we read the word of God, and I say we, meaning the younger generations, we read the word of God and we said, it doesn't say anything about hats in church there. I don't know what they're talking about. And we realized we were lied to. A lot of the younger generation realized they were lied to. And then we wondered why they wandered off, why they just started trickling away from church when they got older, when they began to realize a lot of what I've been told isn't true. So maybe what they said about God isn't true as well. If they lied about this, then they probably lied about this. And they made that conclusion, they came to that conclusion, and they wandered off. And if you talk to especially a lot of the younger generation, and by younger generation, I don't necessarily mean young, uh, 50 and younger, a lot of people that age range have realized, man, I, I was lied to. I was told things that weren't true. And so they, they lost faith in God. And you can criticize that, you can judge that, or you can understand it and say, yeah, you know what? If somebody has a pattern of lying, it's not ludicrous to think that they're going to lie again or that they've lied about something else. And so I, I can't really blame the younger generation for drawing that conclusion. And yet there are still so many church people who still won't own this and repent to it. When someone calls them on it, they just shrug it off and say something to the effect, I've heard this myself. Well, the Bible might not directly say it, but it's still true. In a roundabout way, the Bible still says it. Instead of what we should actually say to that individual who's calling us out on this, you're right. Forgive me for peddling my point of view as Scripture. It was wrong, and I apologize. And do you understand, church, the, the power of that kind of response? When we're willing to admit, you know what? I believe that because I connected the dots. And so in a way for me, I thought the Bible did say that, but I recognize, I acknowledge now, it doesn't say that. It's still my perspective, and I still believe I can back it up with the Word of God, but you're right. Forgive me for not being honest about what the Bible says, or for saying something that was true-ish, instead of bringing to you, this is what the Word of God says, and because of that, I believe this is wrong. But the Bible doesn't say that's a sin. James 4, 6 to 10 says, if you can advance that for me, I never even got that set up. And he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Now, this level of humility as the church, I would argue, is absolutely necessary. When we can, in honesty and humility, admit where we've erred, we're on the right track. 
See, it's so easy for us to look at the enemy. Last week, we talked about how Satan deceived Eve and how this evil character in the Bible, how he manipulates people and how he drives people away and how he uh, drives a wedge between us and God and how he does these things. And it's easy to see him that way. It's really hard to see us do it. But if we're honest, probably most of us, especially if you're a parent, You've perpetuated a lie to manipulate somebody. We do it as parents. Oh, yeah, well, you tell them something in order to get them to stop crying or stop screaming or stop doing whatever they're doing. And it's, it's true-ish what we're saying. But, man, as the church, when we peddle in the enemy's territory, when we peddle the lies, that, the, the currency that he uses... That's when we're in error. And it's not a white lie for the church to do these things. It's not okay. We can't just brush it off and say, well, it's not that big of a deal because I can argue that point of view from the Bible. That's great. Hitler did the same thing. What he did was true-ish. And I would argue no different than what we do. When we try to make things that we believe and from our perspective and we try to say they're the truth of God. The truth of God is different. It doesn't have anything to do with our perspective. It's his perspective. It's eternal. It's never changing. And we should acknowledge in humility, I believe this today, but I might not believe it in 50 years because I'm going to change. Some of you have had that awkward realization as you've grown up in the Lord. And at first, man, you were so against certain things and you were so hard. For me, and I know some of you won't agree with this, I was so against the, now I can't remember the name for it, uh, seeker-friendly church movement. Back when it started, well, I wasn't started when I was in college. But I was so against it. And then I sat with a pastor who was a pastor of an enormous church and he explained to me, and I, I could have taken you right to the Word of God. I could have shown you time after time why what he was doing was wrong. And he sat with me, and he helped me understand what their, what their goal was, that Sunday wasn't for them. And people have knocked the seeker-friendly movement, and it doesn't even exist anymore, just so you know. So if you're still against it, you're against something that no longer exists. But this seeker-friendly movement sought to make people who've never been to church comfortable when they entered a church and the messages were not theologically deep. They weren't the, the, the meat of the word. Why? Because those people had, they had made a pact. They had agreed upon something. That Sunday wasn't for them. They were going to come to church throughout the week. They were going to be engaged in a small group that helped them grow. But Sunday was for the people who were unchurched or who had grown against the, what church looked like. And so they made church look totally different. They brought people in and they got them interested in God and then they would plug them into small groups and into community groups and, and they saw hundreds and thousands of people come to faith in Christ because they started something like this. And I thought, man, how can this be wrong? If people are coming to know Christ in greater numbers than they've ever have in, in, in the recent times and this is working to bring people to Jesus, who am I to knock it? My 20-year-old, I-know-everything perspective pales in comparison to what God's doing. And so I realized, man, I don't, I, I don't necessarily agree with you yet, but I acknowledge I might be wrong because people are coming to know Christ. They're baptizing more people every Sunday than we even have in our church. Something's working. 
People are coming to know Jesus, and they're walking with Jesus. Not just that they're converting, but they were walking with Jesus. And so it was a very humbling experience for me, but we can learn a lot from something like that. For us to just acknowledge, and I believe this so strongly, I will never budge on this. However, I'm a finite person. My understanding is so limited. And so I'll, I'll cling to the word of God, but hold loosely to my perspective and allow the Holy Spirit to move in that. If we could restore trust in God's word, in those who have been disenfranchised by the church or by the truish statements of the church, the lies of the enemy would be robbed of so much of their power. Because if you meet somebody out in public, there's a good chance if they're 25 to 40, they have gone to church at some point. And that's what I would categorize as disenfranchised. They went to church, they saw no power, they saw no relevancy to God. God wasn't moving, it was just a stale movement in a lot of places, a lot of people I've talked to. And a lot of what was said wasn't true. As they went and did their research, which is awesome that they did their research, they found out what was being said wasn't true. The pastor was up there getting red-faced, telling them how if they go to another movie or if they do this, that, or the other, they're, they're going against God, and they realized this is not true. The Bible didn't say anything about that. And so they walked away. And when we're willing to acknowledge that, when we're willing to be humble, we can restore the trust in God's word. To say, yeah, humans have failed. God never did. He is who he said he is. If you rewind back to World War II, do you know how many people were disenfranchised knowing, and and I already used his name, uh, Hitler, how he used the word of God, how many people turned against the Bible and thought the Bible wasn't true because how could this guy do all of these acts in the name of God and even use the Bible to back him up? This is wrong. The Bible's evil. That's the conclusion people came to. We know that's not true. We know that was manipulation. But we never thought we were guilty of it as well. And when we're able to deal with people graciously, we can restore that trust in the word of God. That's our goal in this series is to point out the true-ish lies of the enemy. Today we're going to look at our first true-ish lie, or the lie that I believe many of us have heard and many of us have even bought into over time. But first, a story from my life. I might have shared this before with you. But when I was in college, uh, I was approached by uh, a woman who worked in the college, and she wanted me to be on this, it's called the proof team. Uh, and it was a drama and worship team. It was out of the uh, recruiting office of, of the school, the Lancaster Bible College that I went to. Uh, what they would do, they'd go around to Christian chapels, and they would go around to different things, and they would do drama, and they would do worship, uh, and she wanted me to be a part of this because one of their members was having to leave, and she wanted me to fill in for him um, for the second semester. Um, this would have been my sophomore year, and I didn't know why she kept coming to me um, or why we kept crossing paths, and, and, and she asked me a few times, and at one point I said, listen, I'm not interested in this, not even a little bit. Like, you've not piqued my interest in any way. I'm, I do not like drama, I'm no good at it, and I can't sing to save my life. Why do you keep asking me to be on this team? And she just told me she felt like God kept bringing me to her mind that I should be on this team. And then God began to work on me. 
and convince me this was something he wanted, that this was, that this was true. He had approached, you know, God was putting me in this position. And I remember, like it was yesterday, this conversation I had with God as I sat there and said, God, this is ridiculous. You, we, you know, as much as I do, I hate drama. I'd been involved in a couple drama presentations in the Baptist church I had gotten saved in before I went to college, and I absolutely hated every moment of it, but I didn't really have a choice because who, the guy, people who brought me to church uh, told me I had to be in it, so I had to be in it. Uh, and so I was in the dramas, and I hated it, and I knew very well I couldn't sing at all, that nobody enjoyed my singing, even though I enjoy doing it. Uh, and so I thought, this, there's absolutely no reason for me to do this. God, I'm not good enough to be on this team. In either of these capacities, I'm not good enough for this team. And that's when I, maybe not the first time I heard God, but very clearly said, yeah, that's the point. You're not good enough. And that's the true-ish lie we're going to look at this morning. You aren't good enough. But the deception here in this statement, it's hidden It's not even in the statement. The deception here in this true-ish lie is getting you to believe whether or not you are good enough even matters. That's the deception in this lie. How many of you got married to find out that your spouse was everything you ever hoped for and you never needed anything ever again? Guys, you're missing out on an opportunity here. None of us did. But do you remember back when you were single and anxious and depressed and you just thought, if I could only find a spouse, then everything will be better. I'll have everything I ever wanted. All my hopes and dreams will be met when I find that special someone. Anybody else ever think that when they were single? Anybody willing to admit it? I know I did. I just thought, man, if I could just be married, everything will be great. No more problems. How about your kids? Once you have kids, those of you that have kids, there was never a moment of want again, right? Some of you are like, that's even less true than the last statement. Here's the truth. You aren't a good enough spouse. And you aren't a good enough parent. I know it's a great motivational speech for Father's Day. I don't know why people don't pay me to be a motivational speaker. You aren't good enough because you were never meant to fill the void every human feels. That's where the deception in this lie is. The enemy uses a truth statement to make a lie and to make you believe and even think something that we have no place thinking. So you aren't good enough. You can't fill that void because that's Jesus' role. John 6, 35, very clearly states, Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. And yet, we spend so much of our life trying to, uh, trying to fill the hunger and the thirst that people have in their life, and we are constantly faced with this reality that we're not good enough. And the enemy is always right there to say, see, you're not good enough. And we say, oh, it's true, I'm not good enough. Or 
We do the good Christian response. Back off, enemy, I am good enough. I am good enough. And he wins both times. Instead of stopping to say, you know what, Satan? It doesn't matter if I'm good enough. That premise itself is false, that it even matters. But it doesn't stop us. Realizing that Jesus is the bread and he is the true water that will fill that thirst and that hunger, it doesn't stop us. Guys in the room, if you're married or have kids, we still think if we work hard enough, if we provide enough, we'll be a good enough husband. If we can just provide enough, we'll be a good enough husband and dad. Women, many of you believe, if you just love him enough, you'll be a good enough wife or a mom. You'll just love them enough that they'll never want anything or anyone ever again. Parents, we still believe If we could just give our kids what we never had growing up, if we could just give them the things that we lacked, whether it's love, provision, options, if we could just give them that, we would be a good enough parent that our kids would never need anything ever again. How many of you came to know Christ because you realized you didn't need anything or anybody? Okay? How many of you came to know Christ because of a desperate need for something? I know I did. I felt it in my heart as a little kid. There was something wrong. There was something desperately missing, and I needed it. None of us came to know Christ because we realized that we needed nothing and nobody. So why do we keep trying to fill that void for people in our life? Why do we keep trying to step in that gap and say, I'll be everything you need when we know that's what keeps people from Jesus? If we want them to want Jesus, we have to let them feel the need. And if you're a parent this morning, there's nothing harder than that, is letting your child feel a need. I felt bad this morning. Killing one and picked up. My arms are dead. They hurt right now. They're very painful. But he wanted me to pick him up. And I just felt bad that he he wanted to be picked up. And so I kept picking him up. And he kept squirming and making me drop him. And I'd pick him up. I didn't want him to feel the need. And so I kept trying to fill it. But we do. We try to fill this void that we know only Jesus can fill. And yet we keep falling into the trap. Nothing and nobody was good enough to fill fill that void for us. Only Jesus is good enough. John 14, 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Parents, you will never, never be a good enough parent to get your kids to Jesus. Or to get them to heaven, I mean. Doesn't matter how good of a parent you are. You will not purchase eternal heaven for them. Some of you need to hear that. You can get them to Jesus. You can bring them time and time and time again to him. 
and remind them of who he is and show them who he is. But if you're trying to be good enough that they never need anything or anybody, they'll miss that moment where they need him more than anything. Some of you, you remember what it was like when you hit that place, when you hit that moment and you realized nothing in this world is working. I need something beyond this world. Something that I haven't tried. I've tried women. I've tried sex. I've tried drugs. I've tried alcohol. I've tried partying. I've tried fun. I've tried friends. I've tried loneliness. I've tried traveling. I've tried everything and nothing's filling it. And then we met Jesus. And it was like, what is this? This is easy. This doesn't require effort. This, this I didn't have to work for. It was just given to me. And it fills that void. And then the enemy gets us. He turns us around and he says, but you, now you have to be good enough for your kids, for your spouse, for this situation, for that situation. Fill this void, fill that void. And it's a Jesus-shaped void and we keep trying to fill it. The devil has us chasing our tails, trying to be good enough, trying to fill a spot that only Jesus can with a simple, truish statement. You aren't good enough. You aren't good enough. It's true. It's a true statement. And focusing on this true-ish lie keeps us from understanding a very real truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, I rejoice in the places I'm not good enough. I take pride in the places I'm not good enough because that's where Jesus shows up. And yet we're not willing to do that. We're constantly trying to be better at everything. We're constantly trying to fill these gaps, these voids by ourselves, in our strength, with our love, with our attention, with our time. Some of us have spent so much, we become workaholics because we just think if we work hard enough, we'll earn their love or it'll be enough and they'll have what we never had. Or if we just love that person enough, they'll never walk away again, they'll never do this, they'll never do that, they'll just love me more and, and everything will be great. And we're just, he's got us because he keeps speaking that lie and we keep trying to prove him wrong. And the whole premise is wrong. We need to accept the truth first that we aren't good enough. But we need to accept another truth. It doesn't matter whether we are or we aren't. Whether we're good enough or not in any situation is unimportant because Jesus is good enough. 2 Peter 1.3 says, By His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know Him, the One who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence. Do you know what Peter is talking about here? When he says that 
God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Does that mean when we came to know Christ, we automatically have everything we need? And we, as a Christian, the moment we received Jesus, we became good enough. That's what some churches teach. That's what many Christians believe. That when you came to know Christ, you became good enough. Now you're good enough. Now you're better than the, the, the person who's down and out. Now you're better than the people who are smoking cigarettes and doing drugs and living under bridges and, and, and not having successful lives and having children out of wedlock. Now you're better than them. Newsflash, you are not. You did not become better. You did not become good enough. What happened in this transaction is that God became good enough for us. He came down to this earth. He became a human because we kept failing at it. Millions and millions and millions of people had lived before Jesus, and they all died failing at this one task. And so Jesus did it. He came down. He became a human. He died on the cross. He rose again. And then, because we still weren't good enough, he sends the Holy Spirit, who is good enough. And he indwells us, and he empowers us. And unless we learn to lean on him, we will accomplish nothing for God. Because we aren't good enough. But when we learn to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit, we learn the secret of what Peter is talking about here. That's what the everything is that, they, that, that God gave us to live a godly life. He gave us the Holy Spirit to constantly walk with us, to constantly give us the ability to do things we can't do. You've heard us talk about this word sanctification before. This is a process you cannot accomplish. You can work as hard as you want for the rest of your life, and you will accomplish absolutely nothing in your own power. But when you lean into the power of the Holy Spirit, He will accomplish things that you can't even dream of if you tried to dream of it. That's how good He is. When you really learn to lean into the truth that you aren't good enough, and it doesn't matter that you're not good enough, because Jesus is. And when we stop trying to be good enough, good enough dads, good enough moms, good enough husbands, good enough wives, good enough friends, good enough sons, good enough daughters, we just say, listen, I can see, because this happens if you've never been in this situation where someone's trying to use you to fill that void, and just stop and say, listen, I, I can see that you're trying to fill a void in your life. I can't do that. Only Jesus can. And so I, I'm sorry that I can't fill this void, but I know the one who can. I'd love to tell you about him. His name's Jesus. And the things he could do in your life are way beyond what I could do. Are you done trying to be good enough? Some of us, I hope, are. I hope this has struck a chord with some of you who have been trying and trying and trying to be good enough and allowing the enemy who just sits right there and says, you're not good enough. You see, you've failed again. You've failed again. You'll never be good enough. You keep failing. You're just never gonna be good enough for him, for her, for them. And I hope you've learned to just turn and say, you're right, I'm not, but I know the one who is. 
and you better get out of my face because I'm calling on him right now. See, you're not sticking it to the devil when you try to prove you are good enough. That's exactly what he wants. There are two responses he's looking for. He's looking for the down and dejected response. Oh, I'm not good enough. I'm a failure. And so we binge eat, we binge shop, we binge whatever, drink. We do whatever that is that makes us feel better because we're not good enough. And we tear ourselves apart in that truth. Always looking for the other response, the, the my kind of response of like, I'll show you, devil. I'll work harder than everybody's ever worked. And we distract ourselves that way. And either way, he wins. See, when you're trying to stick it to the devil to show you are good enough, you're just trying to take Jesus' job. And spoiler alert, you will always fail. You will always come up short if you're trying to fill his shoes. We'll never be able to do that. But there is hope. John 8, 31 to 32 says, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to your perspective. No, you remain faithful to the way you interpret the Bible. When you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's that simple. The enemy may have some of you so good. He may have you in such a dark place because you feel like you aren't good enough. And this morning, I just pray that God will use his truth to set you free. The truth that you aren't good enough, but also the truth that it doesn't matter. You were never supposed to be good enough. We failed at that back in the garden. We lost that opportunity back there. And Jesus stepped in for us. See, I recognize my, my words will never convince you to stop trying to be good enough. There's one thing I've come to terms with I'm very thankful for is I'm not a good enough pastor. I can't change any of you. I can't change anybody. I acknowledge that. But I pray that you would let God's word set you free from anxiety, from the depression, from the self-loathing of not being good enough, from the workaholic, from the just push harder, from the keep your nose down and just try, 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 and that you would let Jesus be good enough for you, and that you would rest easy in that assurance this, this day. Let's pray. God, I, this week I was just overcome with the reality of how good you are. You are good enough. And some of us, we've lost sight of that. We knew it when we asked you to be our Savior. We recognize there's nothing else in this world that even comes close. And man, the enemy, he's good. Over time, he's got us trying to fill that void in people's lives. He's got us trying to be you and it's never worked. And God, I pray this morning that you would release people from that bondage this morning, that you would demolish that stronghold in people's lives, that they would no longer be focused on good enough or not good enough, and they would maybe for the first time in years, they would lean back into your arms 
into the Father's arms and realize you are good enough and it's okay that we're not because we never were supposed to be. God, I pray people would be comforted by the truth, that the truth would truly set them free and they would be able to live in a, in a place, in an attitude that isn't trying to do something you've never called us to do, but we would just freely be able to be your children and to live the way you want us to live. God, I pray against the lies of the enemy in this place today that you would quiet those lies and the truth would be seen for what it is this morning. God, I pray especially over our dads today, over the men, as this is Father's Day, that you would break those lies in their life and they would be able to be dads and husbands and brothers and sons that you've called them to be without trying to fill some void. But they would be very ready to introduce the only one who can fill that void. God, I pray this week would be a, a week of freedom for many of us as we crush this true-ish lie in our life. Because my, my guess is some of us won't even get home before we're hit with the reality that we're not good enough. And I pray you would break that this week, today, right now, in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray power over the people in this place and those watching that your word would come alive this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, have a great day and happy Father's Day.